Because I have had the privilege of being the pastor for two congregations with a full breadth of ages, I've had the privilege of being present in people's lives for all sorts of major events, births, baptisms, graduations, weddings, divorces, surgeries, new jobs, retirements, deaths, and burials. Over uh, two and a half decades of work as a parish pastor, that's the way I refer to it, for various reasons, I have been in the presence of dead bodies numerous times. Two times, I have been with persons at the moment of death. In neither of those times could I have told you the exact moment of death. Both people uh, were quite old and had been close to death for days. Both had that irregular pattern of breathing that's called Cheyenne Stokes breathing, which is uh, sometimes very long pauses between breaths, even up to a minute or longer. So, but then there comes a, a stretch where you realize the long pause is not just a pause, that the breath won't be returning. In those moments of long pauses in the breaths and the moment of actual death, the person's appearance is very similar. So, unless they are hooked up to monitors, it can be difficult to know if it's just a pause or if the person has dead. And that's why I said it can be difficult to know the exact moment when someone dies. Based on our text from this morning, if Paul were here, he might say to us that solely based on appearances, it's just as difficult to tell if anyone we encounter is alive or dead. For Paul, whether a person is dead or alive has nothing to do with physical or mental capacities. A person could be entirely physically fit, very active, and yet be dead. Or a person could be capable of solving complex math problems and still not be alive. Paul gives horror movie fans a biblical reason for believing in the living dead. For Paul, the difference between life and death comes down to one factor. With Christ, we're alive. Without Christ, we're dead. Paul is unequivocal about this. In this passage at the very beginning, he states clearly, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions. I like the way the voice translates this. As for you, you were corpses, dead in life 
buried by transgressions. See, it sounds like a horror movie, right? Night of the Living Dead or Zombieland. Part two is coming out soon, Zombieland. But Paul says the reason for the living dead is not because you were bitten by another zombie and so you become a living dead, but Paul blames it on our transgressions and sins. Further, he claims that our transgressions and sins come from following the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, the ruler of the kingdom of air. Again, this is more horror movie stuff. This is Satan, the devil that he's talking about here. In verse 3, Paul adds uh, the following, that following statement, uh, excuse me, in verse 3, Paul adds that following Satan amounts to, as he says, uh, following the cravings of our, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. In fact, actually, the, the Greek is uh, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. That's a, that's a nice carnal way to put it, right? Following the cravings of our flesh. So this horror movie we're now in gets even cruder because of our carnal depravity. And Paul doesn't let anyone escape. Again, in verse 3, all of us also lived among the people following the kingdom of the air at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. So even John Calvin, who wrote before horror movies even existed, John Calvin wrote, our condition may well excite horror. Paul was neither the first person nor the last, both to recognize this as the human condition and to liken it to being dead, even though living. Listen again to Isaiah in our Hebrew First Testament reading. The way of peace, uh, the just, justice is far from us and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness for brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like men and women without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if we were in twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We all growl like bears and moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice, but find none for deliverance, but it is far away. In our own time, or relative at least to Isaiah, T.S. Eliot writes with a similar vision, the hollow men. We are the hollow men. We are the stuffed men, learning together, leaning together, headpiece filled with straw. Alas, our dried voices when we whisper together, are quiet and meaningless, as wind in dry grass or a rat's feet over broken glass in our dry cellar. Shape without form, shade without color, 
paralyzed force, gesture without motion. Those who have crossed with direct eyes to death's other kingdom remember us, if at all, not as lost violent souls, but only as the hollow men, the stuffed men. Without Christ, we are dead, even while we live. And as Paul says, that is true for all of us. Now, I hope that some of us here are saying, no, wait a minute, I'm no satanic, depraved sinner. I don't go around in all black sacrificing goats, or I don't go around in white polo shirts and khaki pants carrying tiki tiki torches and chanting racist slurs. Why am I being thrown in with all those people, people like that? But for Paul, dead is dead. There aren't varying degrees of deadness. In fact, William Barclay does a great job of explaining how it is that all human beings can be considered sinners. And the key for Barclay is the wording that Paul chooses to describe our transgressions and sins. Transgressions is a Greek word that means simply misstep or stumble. So Barclay writes, sin is taking the wrong road. It is the failure to reach the goal and journey's end that we ought to have reached. Um, to illustrate how easy is, this is to do, Tom Wright uh, tells a story in his commentary about driving in Cape Town, South Africa. He wanted to go out to visit uh, an old man that was outside of town about 10, 12 miles. The man gave him directions mostly about different things to look for as you got close to where it was the place to turn off for his home. So Tom Wright sets out. He gets about nine miles outside of the city and starts thinking, okay, I need to start looking for these signs that the, the, the man told me to look for. Not seeing him, not seeing him. At about 15 miles, he thinks, ah, I must have gone too far. So he pulls into a gas station, they get out a map, and they look at it, and they're just, they're both confused. And then they realize that when he came out of Cape Town, he went the wrong way on the, on the right road, but he went the wrong way. So he had gone 15 miles in the, whole dire the wrong direction, and most of the time he was driving perfectly under the assumption that he was going the right way. And so he writes about this exact passage uh, from Paul, we live in a world where human beings left to themselves not only choose the wrong direction, but remain confident that it is, in fact, the right one. Also, the word that Paul uses for sin is even more broadly encompassing of all human beings. It is the Greek word for miss, as in miss the target. In Greek, it's the word Hamartia. So William Barclay writes, a man shoots an arrow at the target, the arrow misses. That is hamartia, sin. This shows us that sin is the failure to hit the target of life. 
Sin is the failure to be what we ought to be and what we could be. And that, this is where Barclay really gets me. He, he wrote these things, and I was like, okay, okay, you got me. He writes, Is a man as good a husband as he might be? Does he try to make life easier for his wife? Does he inflict his moods and temperaments and irritabilities on his family? Uh, I won't answer. Or as a child myself, Barclay writes, have we ever seen the hurt look in our parents' eyes and know we put it there? As your pastor, he writes, is every working hour filled with our hardest and our most conscientious work? Is every task done as well as it could possibly be done? Looked at that way, over the course of my whole life, I may not be Hitler, but I have not been the best that I could be, and I still am not the best that I could be. But Paul's purpose isn't for any of us to try to feel bad about ourselves. Paul is setting us up for good news. Listen again to this transition. After all that, verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ. Paul is only pointing out this background of bleakness in order that the, the gift of life might be highlighted and stand out even more. Life, full, beautiful, true life forever. John Stott notes, Christians are sometimes criticized for being morbidly preoccupied with their sin and guilt. Uh, Stott doesn't write this, but I would add to that. Uh, Christians are also sometimes criticized for being morbidly preoccupied with other people's sin and guilt. So he continues, though, that criticism is fair only when we fail to go on to glory in God's mercy and grace. And that is what Paul is doing. Paul is glorying in God's mercy and grace and love. Again, it's absolutely essential that we hear the reason God makes us alive. Verses 4 and 5, again. Because of his great love for us, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ, even though we were dread, dead in our transgressions, in our sins. Out of love, God made us alive. We were dead, but now we live because of God's love, and especially God's love in the way that we receive it through Christ, the Anointed One. True life comes directly from communion with Christ. Paul uses three verbs to emphasize our reliance on Christ for true life. In English, probably the best translation would be that God co-made alive, 
co-raised and co-seated us with Christ. Basically, Paul was so driven to try to uh, reveal our dependence on Christ for this true life that he made up those verbs. uh, They don't appear anywhere else before this, and they don't appear after this. He, he, was, he made up words to try to, to show us how dependent we are. So each one of them is co, 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 with, made alive, co-raised, co-seated with, with Christ. They are as awkward in Greek as they are in English. But it is all in an effort to communicate to anyone and everyone who will hear We were dead without Christ, but now in love, God has made us truly alive in Christ. And we don't have to wait until after death to experience this new life. That is what Paul desires for the Ephesians and God desires for us, that we experience this true life now. Without Christ, we're dead. But with Christ, we live. This isn't, again, this isn't about looking back at our past and feeling dead. (laughs) It's about opening ourselves up to Christ now and experiencing real life now. Scott Cairns, uh, who is a, a poet that I love and is actually now down at Seattle Pacific, has a poem that gets at this same idea Uh, but with a bit of droll humor. Uh, It's called... That's Elliot. I don't want Elliot again. He's not as funny as Scott Cairns. This is called Adventures in New Testament Greek. Metanoia. Metanoia is the Greek word that is usually translated as repent, repentance. So he writes, repentance to be sure, but of a species far less likely to oblige sheepish repetition. Repentance, you'll observe, glibly bears the bent of thought revisited and mind's familiar stamp, a quaint half-hearted doubleness that couples all compunction with a pledge of reoccurrent screw-up. The heart's metanoia on the other hand, turns without regret, turns not so much away as toward. As if the slow pilgrim has been surprised to find that sin is not so bad as it is a waste of time. I love that. It's just simply a waste of time because we can be alive. Jesus himself states it very clearly. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes God who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. They have crossed over. Notice the past tense. They have already crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, A time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God 
and those who hear will live. We have heard his voice. Let us live. Amen.